everyone, and welcome to Youth Positively Speaking's show, Action to Avoid Opioid Addiction. My name is Paige Ewing, and I work at Prevention Resources as the Multimedia Specialist for Positive Youth. Prevention Resources is a nonprofit located in New Jersey that is dedicated to promoting health and wellness of individuals, families, and community through education, collaboration, advocacy, and treatment. Today, my co-host is Aaron Cohen, the Project Coordinator of Positive Youth Initiative and the Prevention Resources Prevention Director. Thanks, Paige. Again, I'm Erin Cohen, and the Positive Youth Initiatives focuses on building countywide capacity to reduce substance misuse for youth 9 to 20 here in Hunterdon County. So we are very excited to be hosting this show on our platform to really help educate and inform the public about the opioid epidemic, alternatives to opioids, and educate the public on a bill called the No Pain Act. And we're working with Voices for Non-Opioid Choices to educate and advocate for healthy communities through these non-opioid choices. And so today we have with us Dr. Joseph Smith. He's an anesthesiology specialist with over 28 years of experience in the medical field. And so Dr. Smith, welcome to the podcast. We are very excited to have you today. Thank you so much for for inviting me. So could you tell us a little bit about what is an anesthesiology specialist? What do you do? Absolutely. Well, uh, again, you know, I am, uh, I'm, I'm quite uh, involved in the, in the fight against opioid abuse. So I'm, it's a real pleasure to, to, to be here. An anesthesiologist, I think most of your listeners will know, are, are, is the person that uh, puts you to sleep so that you can have surgery and not have pain post-op or, you know, during the surgery. So we're the ones you meet right before surgery. Um, and uh, we uh, talk to you about what type of anesthesia you're going to have and, and have you drift off to sleep and, and uh, uh, so that you have a, a comfortable and, and you don't feel any pain during surgery. So that's, that's what anesthesia does. Now, there are other aspects to anesthesiology, like being an a anesthesiology pain doctor, where you actually go into an office and we're, we're an office doctor and we sit down and we talk to you about your pain and we can do specific blocks. But for for the most part, when you think about an anesthesiologist, they're in the hospital and they're putting you to sleep for surgery. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit more about for anesthesia, like what is your role in patient pain management? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think we can tailor it to, to this conversation, you know, uh, if for, for any type of surgery, you know, you're going to be, um, there, there are different options to going to sleep. So if you're coming in for a, appendicitis, so let's say you're a 10 year old and you happen to have appendicitis, well, you know, you're going to have an IV started and you're going to drift off to sleep and, you know, have a little breathing device after you're asleep and they're going to do the surgery. And we're going to most likely have to give you uh, narcotics to control pain for the surgery, right? Um, but there are other types of surgery where you have choices of how to how to control pain, and sometimes you can avoid narcotics completely. And I think you know even uh, there there are some people across the country that advocate that you can you don't even need narcotics for any kind of surgery. Um, but specifically, let's say you're coming in for a shoulder surgery and you have a, a torn rotator cuff, which is a type of injury that's very common and you get a surgery for that. Well, I often do those procedures. I do a lot of orthopedics and pediatrics and all sorts of anesthesia. But for that type of surgery, I can do what's called a peripheral nerve block. 
where I take a look at your neck with an ultrasound machine and I find the nerves that go down and innervate your shoulder. And I numb up the skin and I go in and I bathe those nerves with local anesthetic. And that makes your shoulder numb. And it stays numb depending on the type of medicine that I use for up to three days or four days. And so that is where we get into the ability to avoid narcotics completely, which is something that I'm very passionate about and uh, something that the public really needs to understand is a possibility and mm -hmm. they need to be um, educated in that process. That's a really good point that you said that it can last three to four days because oftentimes after people have surgery, then they are given opioids directly after surgery for several days, correct? Yeah. So, you know, when you're trained as a physician, I was, you know, when I was, um, you know, you were always writing for 60 Percocets or something like that to give the right. here you go, you know, just take these, you know, until you don't need them anymore. And uh, the problem is when I was, um, you know, I live in Virginia, as you said, and I practice and, and uh, we were very close to West Virginia, which of course, you know, everyone was, is devastated by the, uh, the opioid uh, epidemic, uh, but West Virginia in particular. And I was, um, you know, I, I was looking at this saying, this is horrendous, you know, this is incredible. You know, who's responsible for this kind of thing? And, you know, I realized that it, I was one of those people that were responsible because, I, you know, when you, when you have surgery and you come in, it's about 10% of the, the patients that have procedures in the hospital and go home on these narcotics, it, six months later or a year later are addicted to the, the narcotics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we as physicians, surgeons and anesthesiologists, are, are to blame for part of this. And, and so I think it's, and, and if you talk to so many people who are involved in the opioid addiction process, and, and it's amazing how many people take this route. They've had surgery, they went home, they took narcotics for post-surgery and they were never able to get off of them. Mm -hmm. And especially young kids, you know, the 17 year old takes it and it's like their brain, oh my God, my brain has never felt so good in my life. You know, mm -hmm. so um, they finish those narcotics and then they try to, you know, buy some at school or, and then they go to the much cheaper and much more variable heroin on the street. So, right. you know, there has to be a way of intervening at that vital place where kids are having surgery, teenager, teenagers are having surgery and preventing them from ever taking a narcotic, even during the procedure. Cause I don't know what, you know, the, what changes in the brain are happening, even when they're asleep, mm -hmm. but most importantly, that they don't go home and take these. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you make a good point about how everybody's different. We don't know what it is that lights up one person's brain versus another who can take it for three days and be done and never take it again. What do you recommend for patients to advocate? What do you recommend them to when they go into the doctor and they're having surgery? Because most people don't really, I feel like, ask these questions. Um, what do you recommend? Yeah. So if um, I think 
for for parents of teenagers and kids that are going in or or anyone for that matter but this is something that's near and dear to my heart is trying to prevent the kids from 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 uh getting started on this stuff and uh, you know to go in and say i'm interested in a non-narcotic technique to say listen is there any way that we can do this surgery without my kids ever having to receive narcotics mm-hmm. and you know some surgeons will say, you know, as a matter of fact, um, we can, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, so that you are doing a type of nerve block that lasts for a long time. And you're taking what's called a multimodal approach. A multimodal approach is when you're taking a lot of different non-narcotic medications that work at different aspects of the pain, different areas of the brain, different areas of the body. Um, so, you know, you're thinking of things like Celebrex, which is like a high powered ibuprofen mm-hmm. and Tylenol and, uh, and all these other drugs that, you know, sort of contribute. The drug that I, that I use um, for, and there's many of them, the drug that I, um, you know, like to use is something called Expirel. And Expirel is something that I mix in with the medicine that I inject in the peripheral nerve uh, block. And that is the thing that helps the, it, it's a special type of medication that slowly releases the local anesthetic over three days. Mm-hmm. And that's what allows these patients to avoid narcotics. And uh, it's really been an eye opener for me. I started doing this, wow six or seven years ago or something even more I can't even remember now I should probably have that Um, (laughs) but uh but so you know and and it was amazing because when we before the long-lasting drugs like Expiro we would use just a a local anesthetic called bupivacate and that would last uh, 24 hours which was great because you could get them through the surgery without giving them um narcotics and then you get them home and but the problem is is that at 24 hours it was like turning off a switch they'd be like hey this is great and then i'm in excruciating pain right and uh so they would invariably need to take narcotics to Mm -hmm. decrease that pain Mm -hmm. with the long-lasting medication then it would sort of more gradually wear off and it would last a lot longer. So they were able to avoid uh, having to take the narcotics. And it was wonderful to see, you know, you would call uh, these people um, and they would be like, yeah, I haven't had to take any, you know, narcotics and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, a really great, um, you know, side, uh, a, um, Something that was wonderful in addition to not having to take narcotics is that we were able to decrease or eliminate the pills that we sent home. Because if you go home with 80 pills or 60 pills or 40 pills and you don't take them and they're sitting in your cabinet, guess what happens? The 14-year-old gets a hold of them, tries them or takes them to school and sells them. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of that with these medications. So not only are we decreasing the ability, the, the chances of these patients becoming addicted to these substances, but we're decreasing the, the supply in the community, which was wonderful. Um, in addition to, you know, really encouraging them to bring back those narcotics to us so that we can dispose of them 
I think uh, that doesn't always happen. So I think it's really important to decrease the number of pills that are available to be misused by family or friends. I'm so glad that you bring up, you know, helping communities by reducing opioids in the communities from our medicine cabinets. And I think that's why we really advocate for people to use the medicine disposal drop boxes in their community. I know here in Hunter and Somerset County, there's one at almost every police station. We were talking with ShopRite. They want to get one because they have a pharmacy there. Really making sure that our community members know how to dispose of them, you know, by either going to the drop box or even, you know, knowing that they can take the medication, put it in a Ziploc baggie with some kitty or coffee grounds, something like that, pouring the medication into the bag, shaking it up and tossing it away so that it becomes unattractive to somebody who might want to go through the trash to find those opioid medications. Um, and I think, you know, by having providers like you who are not only advocating for patients to have alternatives, but then also for community organizations to say, okay, if you do have an opioid, because there are absolutely necessary times that somebody's going to be prescribed them, but it's like when you get them, use them for the prescribed amount of time and then get rid of the rest so that nobody else is at risk for an opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. I agree a hundred percent. And the other thing too, so Dr. Smith, now that you have, you know, you're very passionate about this and you've seen that there are other things that you can do opposed to using opioids. Tell us a little bit about barriers of insurance, because we hear this all the time that providers have barriers patients have barriers. So tell us a little bit what you deal with. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, topic. And, and I, I'm in a unique position because not only uh, I, do I work in a surgery center, an outpatient surgery center, but I also work in the hospital that's next door to that surgery center. Okay. So there's two different things going on. So the, the um, CMS, the, um, made it um, so that they would pay for some of these non-narcotic alternatives in the surgery center. So before they did this, you know, if you go to have surgery in a surgery center, it's something, it, it, we do something called bundling payments. So that means that um, the surgery and the anesthesia and the payments for all the medications are all bundled into one payment, right? So then you have someone who, uh, you know, you have a surgery center administrator looking at this and saying, well, do I really, if I'm only getting get paid this one amount, do I want to really pay for this really expensive, um, you know, or expensive drug that would decrease narcotic use. So the Expirel that I use for um, the surgery would probably be about 150 extra dollars for a surgery. So there are a lot of uh, surgery centers across the country that said, no, I'm not gonna pay that extra amount. You know, we can get them out the door with the regular bupivacaine and you know, uh, that's sort of not our problem, all right? Mm -hmm. Luckily, um, for a lot of the, you know, uh, the CMS said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna unbundle those medications for the surgery center. So therefore, we can we can use those medications, and the ins most of the insurances will pay for us to use that insurance that medication, so that the surgery center gets reimbursed when they use it. Unfortunately. Um, CMS did not see their way to make it 
available in the outpatient surgery department of the hospital. Mm. So when I go and do a surgery, um, I work in the, the main hospital as well. So I'm doing the same kind of case, the same kind of shoulder surgery in the hospital. The pharmacy won't give me that medicine. I say, well, listen, this is going to be great. You know, it's a 17-year-old. He shouldn't be exposed to narcotics. You know, please give me that $150 medicine and we could maybe prevent, you know, what's, you know, what's wonderful for society, which is decreasing, right. you know, this. And, and the pharmacy's like, nope, you know, that costs too much money. I'm not going to give it to you. Sorry. You know, and uh, it's so frustrating because... Mm -hmm. These people really deserve it, especially the really elderly people. The last thing they need is to be, you know, taking narcotics at home. They're already, you know, have some trouble breathing and, uh, you know, and so we're diminishing their, their ability to breathe and, and all this kind of stuff. And so they deserve to have this medicine as well. So um, those are the kind of roadblocks that I run into. And, you know, you did mention the No Pain Act. So the No Pain Act would remedy that. They, that law would allow for the, these kinds of um, alternatives to narcotics to be unbundled and be paid for by insurance. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's really important that, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of that law. And uh, so I think that would help a lot. And I think that's why the No Pain Act is so important because it really isn't taking any tools out of the toolbox. I know that we've said this in previous episodes on this show, but really this act is just giving providers more options, patients more options, hospitals, outpatient surgery centers, everybody more options to take care of their patients, which at the end of the day, you know, I think everybody can agree. We want healthier, safer communities. Um, and so I think that's why it's so important that, you know, our communities stay up to date with what our legislators are talking about, because at the end of the day, when we do need a surgery, whether it's because we're an athlete, we're getting older or or there's an accident, you know, we want to have all of the options available to us um, and to, of course, our loved ones as well. And Dr. Smith, having teenagers myself who also play sports, I appreciate that there's providers out there like you who are looking out for the greater good. And I think as time goes on, especially as this opioid epidemic continues on, I mean, we just got those numbers recently yeah. that there were over a hundred thousand people who died of overdoses last year. When we look at a community, you know, in our side in prevention, you know, the phone folks with the no pain act with providers like you who are looking at the different options, you know, we have to come together as a community in order to um, break this cycle of addiction and you know, if we don't have to give a 17 year old who has an injury, any opioids, that is our best bet to know that we're going to have this drug-free community later on. So as a parent of teenagers and athletes, I appreciate that. You know, the other, the other thing that I've noticed, and, and I don't have any studies to back this up, but, you know, as I've been doing this for many years, I, I, I think it's just good medicine too. I think the patients that I that I don't give narcotics to, and this includes having, you know, we do total joints in the outpatient department and things, and they just seem to do better. 
you know, they're, they're, and I don't know what the reason, maybe they're, they're, they have, they can breathe better because they're not on the narcotics and they can, they don't get the atelectasis and the lungs and, and all that kind of stuff, but they, it just seems better medicine to me um, for, for these patients. And I would have to agree with you too. So my mom works at an outpatient surgery center. She's a nurse manager there. Um, and for a while, um, they were giving IV Tylenol to their patients during surgery instead of the typical few days of Percocet. And she also saw that her patients had less pain overall. And then a day or two later, they were like, oh, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. And they were like, oh, just, you know, take a Tylenol or an Advil. And they were fine. And they never even needed to touch the Percocet. And my dad also works in a hospital he's a nurse anesthetist. Um, and I was talking to him before this podcast because I was like, okay, you know, anesthesia a little bit, dad, (laughs) tell me about it. Um, and he was saying the same thing for the patients who, you know, seem to not use the opioids to treat their pain. And instead, you know, nerve blocks or other things, they do seem to have longer, better outcomes. So I would love to see a study done to help, you know, really reinforce that so that we can go to our insurance companies and say, look, people are healthier, meaning that they're going to need you less, meaning you get to spend less money because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it's the finances that these insurance companies are worried about, um, which is frustrating. But at the same time, if we can prove that, you know, these alternatives really are more beneficial in the long run, which of course we have anecdotal and some studies that prove that, um, it'll be even more evidence to convince them to not limit these alternatives. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we're up against uh, uh, the finances, as you mentioned, you know, when I was talking about the pharmacy at the hospital, we're talking about, you know, $150 for that one dose of that medicine versus literally pennies for the narcotics, you know, mm-hmm. so that's the type of, uh, that's what we're dealing with. And, and uh, so it's, it's difficult to fight that battle. And it's also difficult to fight just um, years of practice, uh, you know, my specialty, you know, are, is unwilling to uh, come quickly over to the fact that no narcotics is better than, you know, than, you know, to, it, they're just difficult to, to, they're dinosaurs, a lot of them are just like, you know, what do you mean, you know, we're still going to use narcotics, it's just as good, and, you know, that, that kind of thing, but I think it's very clear that uh, using narcotics, especially using them post-surgically um, is, it, it leads to addiction and leads to a, a worse outcome medically. It absolutely does. And that's something we talk about when we talk about stigma and things like that, that so many people look at folks who overdose with, um, you know, they look down on them, that it's a moral failing. And so many are people that have come into your office or any other doctor's office, had a surgery, became addicted, couldn't get pills anymore. And then they turn to heroin and then ultimately die of an overdose. They're everyday people who are going in for surgeries for whatever reason, you know, and I think as time continues on, as um, I think more doctors will jump on the boat with you, you know, seeing that this is good medicine and that you can do the same thing without that risk of addiction. Um, And And the other thing too, about money that I always find very interesting, you know, when you're talking about pennies versus $150, think about what it costs our country and insurance companies for all these folks who 
are dealing with the ramifications of addiction to yeah. opioids. It's costing yeah. billions and billions of dollars every year, not to mention the amount of lives that are lost. The amount of money on the back end is way more than that $150 on the front end. So right. we have to get that mindset with everyone and hopefully, you know, people will continue to inform themselves and you know, look into, you know, the no pain act, which really does benefit everyone in this country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for coming on, for being a fierce advocate for your patients. And then also, you know, being an educator for other providers as well. Um, sometimes I think it's good to hear it from the horse's mouth, um, the person actually providing um, to hear what your perspectives are. Um, so I want to thank you for that. And of course, I want to thank our community members too, for utilizing things like their drug disposal boxes, for talking to their providers about the alternatives for making those steps to live a happier and healthier life. And so if you're a listener or a viewer who feels fat passionately about those, these topics we've spoken about, we do encourage you use those drug disposal boxes, ask your prescriber for alternatives if you're experiencing pain, and then even go as far as educating your state and national legislature members about different things that you feel passionately about. Um, for more information about the No Pain Act, something we mentioned a few times today, please visit nonopioidchoices.org. And for more information about opioids and our initiatives, visit our website at njprevent.com forward slash no pain. And we want to thank you so much for listening in, and we'll see you next time for more youth positively speaking about actions to avoid opioid addiction.